0: That is why we gather today, to give thanks, to give thanks as we're reminded, as we hear, as we sing to one another of his wonderful works, what he has accomplished on our behalf, what he has done for us. We gather to worship, to exalt and to praise. Let's bow together and come before our God. Father, we again thank you for this time that we can gather before you. We praise you that you have been gracious and merciful to command us to come to hear you, to see you, to be met by you. Father, we praise you for your goodness that you have shown to us in your Son. We praise you for the Spirit that you have poured out on us, that opens our eyes, that draws us, who helps us to see who helps us to hear. And Lord, by your Spirit, we come to you asking you to do those things that you have told us to seek you for. Father, we pray for your church. Lord, this is your holy church. And we ask that you would cultivate the truth from your word in your church. We pray that you would purify your church, that you would, that you would remove corruption. Lord, that, in other words, that you would sanctify us. Father, we ask that you would direct us in the truth. Lord, if there is any erring understanding or belief that you would... Reform us. we pray that you would establish us, that you would provide for your church, that you would unite us. Lord, we pray that you would do that not just for Cross Point, but that you would do that for your church throughout the world. We ask that you would do that for the sake of your Son who died and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us. Lord, we pray that you would send out missionaries, sent ones, all over this world and to the United States, Lord. We pray that you would send those missionaries to proclaim your word, your gospel. Lord, we know that you did send your Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. And we're asking that through Him that you would grant that all men everywhere would seek after you and find you, and that you would pour out your Spirit on all flesh, and that you would bring the nations into your fold. And Lord, we pray for those who are in need now. You are the God of mercies. We ask that you would, again, make us true servants of you for others. We pray that you would make us imitators of you. That we would show mercy to the needy in our midst. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen us to do those things. We pray that through us you would comfort with the grace of your Holy Spirit those who suffer sorrow or sickness or adversity. We pray that you would have mercy on those to whom death draws near. And we pray that you would bring consolation to those who are in sorrow or mourning this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would remember those who suffer persecution for the faith. And again, by the power of your Spirit, give us wisdom. Give us the faith we need to be your vessels in all of these works. Lord, we pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, in Ruth, we see that, or we saw that she's come back to Naomi out of the field. Right? Naomi has seen this great blessing that was granted by Boaz, and we saw this thing that we hadn't seen. We've seen it in Boaz, we've seen it in Ruth, but we hadn't seen it in Naomi until last week at the end of chapter 2. We see her faith strengthened, right, like the wind enters the sails, and she, she gets moving. Yahweh has shown her, and she's seen it that he has not forgotten her, that he's not abandoned the living or the dead, that he's brought her, or is bringing her, from death to life, burial to resurrection. And now, with that hope, we're going to see something new for Naomi again. We're going to see her, with this hope, encourage her daughter-in-law. Let's stand with me for the reading of God's word. Just turn to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or But arose, um, excuse me. But arose before one could recognize another, and he said, "Let no, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor." And he said, "Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out." So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "How, uh, how, how have you, how did you fare, my daughter?" Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Again, Father, we thank you for your word we thank you that you have been so gracious as to speak to us. You really do speak to us. You disclose, you reveal yourself in this word that you have given to us, that you've preserved. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes so that we could see you in this Word, to see how you show yourself, to see how you direct us. Lord, I pray that you, by this Word, through your Spirit, would convict us, would comfort us, would strengthen us, And would mold us into the people that you have called us to. Lord, we trust you. We trust your promise that you don't allow your word to return void. We trust you, Lord, that you've said you will accomplish all that you intend. We trust you to do it. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, if I say to you, That's it, it's hopeless, it's hopeless. Nothing can be different, nothing will be different. Nothing can change. Nothing will change. How do you like that? How does that, how does that feel? You got no hope. No chance. Anybody want to spend the afternoon with me? I'm just a party, aren't I? I mean, you know people like this too, right? That there's just nothing. It sort of just sucks all the air out of the room. Things are hopeless. I don't know if you've been hopeless or if you've felt real hopelessness, but it's incredibly draining. It's like everything gets sucked out of you. When you're really hopeless, it's sort of immobilizing. You do nothing. You want nothing. Because there is nothing. Hope is pretty important. Hope sustains us when we have hope. I mean, hope, if, you, if, anybody, if anybody's ever run, right? You know, you get to the middle of a run, and you can't see the end of the run, it feels pretty hopeless. <laughs> well, but then you get to where you can see like the finish line you get to see the place where you're going to be able to stop and you're like oh yes and it sort of carries you this happens with projects you have a project that you're doing you get in the middle of the project and you're like I don't even know what I'm doing next it's hard to think about Taking the next step, but then when it starts to come together, you're like, "Oh, okay, 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 yeah, 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 right. I got to Know where I'm going. I mean, do you see how that, do you see how that's different? When you have hope, it's like it invigorates you. It vi- revitalizes you. You come alive. It keeps you alive. Hope keeps you moving forward." So it goes without saying maybe, we need hope, we really do. Hope is a precious resource. And in this passage, we see this great demonstration, a great illustration. Of how we encourage one another, how we strengthen one another with hope. Again, we're going to see this in a place that we haven't seen it, with Naomi. I mean you got this is a great this is a great part of the book because the next this chapter and then the next chapter everything starts to come together I mean it's really cool how everything that's been sort of uh, fragmented starts to find its way into this whole piece again all of the problems that this this book laid out, they get solved in a significant way. And we're going to see all of that come together in chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're going to do this in three parts, right? So just so that you can kind of know what to anticipate. We'll start with verses 3, 1 through 5. This is where we get to see, as we direct one another to hope, kind of here's how this happens. We direct one another to pursue the source of hope. That's the first thing that we see Naomi do. We direct one another to to pursue the source of hope. Naomi does a cu- this in a couple of moves. First of all, she shows kind of why she's doing this or sort of what motivates this for her. We get to see her faith on display. She trusts that Boaz is the real answer to this hope. Look at verses 1 and 2. She says, it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, says, My daughter, should I not seek? Rest for you, that it may be well for you, that it may be well with you, is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were. Now remember, Ruth has been the end of chapter two. Ruth has been out in the field, Boaz's field, for barley and wheat harvest. Right. This is the you know this, the the festival of Israel. This period is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. That's going to come up here in just a little bit. But that's where she's been. And then, as we saw last week again, she came in, she had this big haul from Boaz's field, and Naomi got excited and infused her with hope, and she's sort of of putting those two things together again. She discovered last week that it was Boaz, the Redeemer. She's bringing that up again. She's bringing up this issue of wanting rest for her daughter-in-law that she actually alluded to back in chapter 1. And this, again, shows the difference. In Ruth 1.9, Naomi said, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Only then, where was she directing Ruth for that? Back at her house. Back at her place. In Moab. Remember back then, Naomi was going, you're not going to get anywhere with me, sister, so go back home. Man. May the Lord bless you there because they, I got nothing here. There's no hope. But now we see Naomi is set. She sees Boaz. She trusts that he is the answer to this whole thing and to to the whole problem, right? Widowhood, childlessness, loss of land, loss of property, no real sustenance, no protection. He's the answer to this. We've seen all of that. But we see her here focused on it. We see her here invigorated by that. And we see her here motivated to push her daughter-in-law to that hope in him. She goes even further. Look at the rest of chapter or, or, or verse two and three and four. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. It's an obvious point, but it's worth stating here. in trusting that he is the answer to this thing Naomi gives Ruth a plan to approach him. All right We'll get into more details. I just want you to notice, again, the obvious point. She tells her, "See. See, he's winnowing He's wit- uh, yeah, winnowing. He's winnowing. Like, over there, he's winnowing. Tonight. And then she gives her this direction and then she says this thing. She goes, observe where he lies down. See, all of this. She keeps pointing Ruth to this person, Boaz, him, this guy, where he's going to be. All of this demonstrates that she trusts that he's the answer, but she doesn't Just trust that he's the answer. She trusts that Boaz will answer. The rest of verse 4 and 5, it says, Then go and uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Naomi is not just pointing out, right, the Redeemer over there in the distance. She is sending Ruth to him. She is sending him there. OK? So you can say it this way, right? Well, I'm not going to ask you, but you know, I mean, I think probably many of us know what it is to be in debt. Right? I've made some rather stupid decisions in my life and incurred the slavery of debt. Anybody else know that feeling? And I remember, right, that when I was younger, I used to have these fantasies of some benefactor who would magically come along (laughs) and wave their magic wand and bling! No more debt, right? It could happen. People have magic wands. They just don't necessarily tell you about them. Right? So it's one thing, you know, if somebody's in debt. You're talking to this person. Just, oh, I'm just leaving that. To say, oh, that person over there's got a lot of money. So what? It's another thing. Entirely to say that person over there has a lot of money and they love to help get people out of debt. Oh, okay. Now I'm listening. That is what Naomi believed. She didn't just believe that he was the answer, she trusted that he would, in fact, answer. Then then she said, go. And then she told Ruth what to expect. He will tell you what to do. You can go there because he's going to respond to you. He is going to give you what he has to offer. Now, we're already set up. We've done a lot of work already over the last few weeks to be able to recognize the larger redemptive story here. Okay, so you're, you know where I'm going to go here. You and I, we are directing one another right, to the source of this hope. And one of the things that's going to motivate you to do that for one another is that you know it yourself. So that's the question, right? We could talk all day long about doing this mutual encouragement thing, me directing you to Christ. What I can say is that will be probably most effective, and we can say it like that maybe, most effective when you know why it is you're directing that other person to him. And you will know why you're directing that other person to him when you know what it is to have gone to him yourself, to have received from him yourself, to have known yourself, your need, and you have gone and gotten that need met by him. You direct other people to Christ because you trust him. You know him. You know what he has. You know what he gives. This grace, this mercy. Or as Hebrews says it, this this help in time of need from this throne of grace. We could ask that of each other. Have you been to that throne of grace? Do you know how sweet it is? Do you know how stable it is? Do you know how faithful he is? We will do this as we know him. We will be motivated by this grace that we have tasted. So that's the first thing, right? We see in Naomi this wonderful example of directing one another to the source of hope. Because we trust that he'll answer. We trust that, or we trust that he is the answer. We trust that he'll answer. Next we see, and this is in three, chapter 3, 6 through 15, how we direct one another to seek the assurance of hope. And that assurance comes sort of in a few different ways here. First of all, we see it with Ruth. And assurance comes as she expresses need. Or we could see this too in Naomi directing her. He's, Naomi's directing her, tell him what you need. Here's Naomi, I mean, excuse me, Ruth in 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over. Behold, the woman lay at his feet and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me. Again, we know Ruth and Naomi's story. Widow, childless, right? The details of this narrative express those things as well. You notice that Ruth is coming to him at night. At midnight. Now, this isn't sort of weird, right? This is the way your Bible works. The Bible works in pictures and symbols and themes. And you have this great unfolding sort of drama, redemptive drama, that we could tell in lots of different ways. One of which is dark and light. Dark and light. We see this in the Psalms of Ly- uh, a lot. What happens at night? Weeping. Sorrow. What comes in the morning? Anybody know that psalm? Joy. You see this over and over again, and it's it's supposed to be there. She's coming at night in darkness. We could even say this, right? She goes down to the threshing floor. At night. And it's sort of, and this is dangerous. Let me, let me see if I'm getting ahead of my. No, okay, yeah. And this is dangerous, right? Socially, she's way out there. First of all, she's a servant, he's the master, right? She's not invited to the threshing floor, she just goes down on her own. She's a woman, he's a man, right? She's a foreigner. He belongs there. Right? This whole scene is like a little picture of her life, her existence right now. And Naomi's as well. I mean, this, the way this is described reveals, puts on display, here's the problem that needs to be solved. Is it going to be? And then she expresses her need verbally. She tells him, spread your wings over your servant. This is a plea for protection. It's a symbolic act. It shows this sort of investiture. And what I mean is this spreading your wings over me. And I'll show you this in a second. It's this idea of inaugurating a new relationship. And in fact, this is the exact wording, almost the exact wording of Boaz's prayer for Ruth, back in chapter two. He said, "The Lord," in 2:12, he said, "The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel." ready for it?" under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know what Ruth is doing here? She's asking Boaz, ready, to be the answer to his prayer or blessing for her. she's saying, you talk about Yahweh, under under whose wings I've come to take refuge, blessing me and giving. Do it! We've already seen he's the picture of this. He is the representative of Yahweh here in this story. And she's saying, do what you have asked for, because you can. Or to bring it down, right, what she is asking him to do is marry her. That is what "spread your wi- your wings over me" is about. Right? There's lots of discussion about, you know, ooh, she's coming to the she's coming to the threshing floor at night. Ooh, it's risque, right? Well, there are lots of reasons not to go with a risque reading of this. Much of which is right here in the passage. He's asking, she's asking him to marry her. He's, she's, and this is not like your usual kind of thing, right? Marriage. Remember, this is that Leverite marriage where she is widow with no children. Her mother-in-law is widow with no children. And remember that means that the name, the whole family, might as well be wiped out of existence now. Unless someone carries that name on from within the family, and that's who the redeemer is, she's asking him to act on that redeemer status. That's the kind of marriage that she is asking for here. One commentator says, "It's interesting, right? That um, you know, this isn't like this is about contracts, right? This is is about you know." you know, a covenant, this is sort of has its context in a covenantal, a covenantal relationship, uh, the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. But the commentator points out, you, you don't have a whole lot of romance here. Right? I mean, you get, you get clues or hints that they kind of like each other, but romance is not like at the forefront of this whole thing. Let me give you this connection so that you can uh, establish this a little bit more with the marriage thing. You know where else we see this, this sp- a spread your wings over phrase in Scripture? It's Ezekiel 16. I'd encourage you to read that whole chapter but particularly like 1 to 9, I'm just going to read 16, 8 and 9. This is what God is saying. And he's speaking to Israel here. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. That's what it says. I spread the corner of my garment over you. Literally, it says, and I spread my wing over you. Garment is sort of added just to sort of make some sense of it. Literally, it's I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. And then here's here's the punchline. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And he goes on to say how he clothed her. What's fascinating, you remember what happened earlier in this passage when when, Ruth, when Naomi gave Ruth the initial instructions, remember verse 3, she said, Wash, anoint yourself, and put on your garment. Now, when that kind of thing happens in Scripture, we're supposed to see connections between themes. You've got this washing, anointing, and spreading wings over. This idea is all about betrothal. That's the idea here. Yahweh is making a vow, and that's a reference to Sinai. I mean, if you look at the passage, that's what he's referencing. He's talking about when he brought, when he made them his. It was out at Mount Sinai by covenant. And so what Ezekiel is doing is he's depicting this time when God covered, uh, or, or excuse me, he's depicting the Sinai event as a time when God covered his, when, covered his people with his wing and betrothed them to him. And a new relationship was formed. He was theirs and they were his. Marriage. That is precisely what Ruth is asking Boaz specifically to do. And here's the beautiful thing. If we back up and look at the larger story of Ruth that we've been looking at, we're look, we're, she's asking A Boaz to do for her what God has done for His people, to make her one of them, to bring her in. Now, let me draw two, bring two lines here. Just stay with me, because this is this is. I don't want to. I'm going off script here, so I just want to. And now Tracy's going. Oh, are you kidding me? And just go, just hang on with me. All right. So now we got that clear. Everybody grab, everybody has what I'm talking about with Ezekiel 16. That, you ever, you, that's not like a reach, right? Okay, you want to hear something else that's really cool? Okay, and I want to bring these together. All right? A few pieces. All right. One of them is how the spirit is connected with this whole wing thing. Remember Genesis 1? Remember Genesis 1? The Spirit, what's the Spirit doing over the water? Hovering, right? And then in Deuteronomy 32, something else interesting happens, right? Spirit is, it's hovering over God's people out there in the wilderness. And it's funny, the wilderness is the same word that gets used for the formless waters back in Genesis 1, And that glory cloud that was there, and the cloud of glory at Sinai, and that was leading the people, and all that good stuff—the spirit gets connected with that all over the place in Scripture, like Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah 9, and Isaiah 63. The spirit gets connected with all that. And let me give you another little, so they've got, the, got two plates spinning, right? Let me give you another. You know when Ruth gets, you know when Ruth gets read traditionally in, in sort of a Jewish context? Around, I think it's the pronounced the pronunciation is Sukkoth. Sukof, right? That's the feast of weeks. That is Pentecost. Part of the reason is because that's when all this stuff is taking place in Ruth. So let me sort of bring this home. Do you know where we get written into the story here? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is, ready? Pentecost. The celebration of the Feast of Weeks. Everybody from all nations coming together, kind of descending on Jerusalem. And what happens? Peter, well, 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 before this happens, everybody's in the upper room. And what, what event unfolds? The outpouring of the Spirit. And Peter's sermon that explains all of this is that this outpouring of the Spirit tells all of you that this Jesus that you killed has been vindicated, raised, and is seated on the throne. That betrothal that we participate in happened then, has been done. We have dwelling in us and with us the very Spirit that inaugurates this new relationship, that affects this new relationship, making us His and Him, ours. All of that to show. I say all of that to show how this need that that um, uh, that Ruth verbalizes in that historical moment, in real time, in a real history, incorporates us so long after. So that assurance comes by expressing the need. We'll build on this in a second. Secondly, that assurance comes by words of comfort. Look at verse 10. And he said, this is Boaz, and he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this kindness greater than the first time. You have not gone after young men, or excuse me, the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, and now my daughter, do not fear. This is Boaz's response. He blesses her for her act of kindness. Again, this is where we get the sort of marriage thing coming in really clearly. She is a free agent. She does not have to seek this Leverite marriage. Remember, we've said this about Ruth. She is living out her faith. She is living out what it means to be one of God's covenant people by acting for her mother-in-law to provide for her, to give to her. She She is doing What a covenant member does. She seeks after this family redeemer to bring back wholeness to the family, to set things right again. And the word that she hears is one of comfort. Blessed by the Lord are you. And he tells her, Do not fear. This is sort of a, hey, all of that past, the loss, the anxiety, you can leave that. In fact, I like the way that he says it. And now, my daughter, do not fear. And now, this is that turning point. For her. We could say it, this is that turning point, maybe where darkness is moving away and she's moving into light. And then, in in, in directing one another to seek this assurance of hope, this assurance comes by words of promise. In the rest of verse 11, after he says, and now my daughter do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, excuse me, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, if he, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Here we get some tension, some twist. We're all excited about Bo. Does anybody want Ruth to get with Boaz? Anybody? I mean, you really, as you're reading this story, everybody's like, "Yay!" I mean, this is really like that. You can't. This is great. This is the best, you know, kind of story. This is a, like like this is like a, um, this is like lifetime TV. Or the Hallmark channel. Maybe they better. This would make a great Hallmark story, wouldn't it? Christmas time on the threshing floor, or something like that. (laughs) Trademark. (laughs) Trademark, just in case that comes up. Christmas time on the threshing floor. Right? There's this twist. Ruth said it You are a redeemer, right? Um, Naomi said that. He is a redeemer. Or, yeah, he's a redeemer. Well, there's someone else that has a right to the land before Boaz. Boaz knows this, which this is, you know, this is, again, you see this guy, and he's this true covenant you know, follower of Yahweh. You see this integrity, all of those great things about him. Somebody that's near. The point, though, is this. Right, right now, you know, we're not sure how this is all going to happen with Boaz, but what we do know from what he has said is that the problem is going to be solved. That's what, that's what, um, that's what Ruth hears. The assurance of hope comes from this promise from him that it is going to be dealt with. Interestingly, you remember Naomi told Ruth. And I just this is just a, something to think about here. You remember Ruth, I mean Naomi told Ruth, right? This was she was confident about that he is going to answer. She said, "He will tell you what to do." Well, let's look at what Boaz has told her to do, right? He's told her that she's blessed by the Lord. He's told her, "Don't fear. He's told her, I'm going to do what you ask. And then he's told her, sleep. Did you notice that twice? Twice. Remain here tonight. At the beginning of verse 13. And then at the end, lie down until morning. It doesn't say rest. But it sure communicates rest. Boaz, what he's told her to do, trust me. Trust me. And then... He does something interesting. Again, we don't know how Boaz's role yet. We're going to see that in chapter 4. But look how the night ends. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could realize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman was on the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Right? He, he seeks to preserve her reputation, Right, leaving while it's still dark. But before he does that, there's this symbolic gesture, another symbolic gesture. Right, We've got spreading of the wings over. But then we've got this other symbolic gesture. He gives her grain. Right? He gives her grain, which embedded in the story up to this point, or this chapter, is signifying... The genuineness of his promise. He's giving her something to hold on to, to know that this is going to happen. This is going to be resolved. The problem that you're facing, right? widowhood, childlessness, nothing, no land, no protection, no sustenance, that's going to be dealt with. But what's interesting is the way that he does it. He doesn't just give her grain. Here's another one of those funny things that your Bible does. He measured out six measures. Do you remember last time he gave her grain? Or he didn't give it to her. She, she, would, you know, she was out gleaning. Do you remember when that happened back in chapter 2? Then we got all excited because it was an ephah of grain. Well, I mean, you didn't get excited because you didn't know what that. But it was a specific weight, an ephah of grain. Here, they don't give a specific weight. A measure is not a weight. What, what is the measure? It's not a weight. We don't have any idea what the weight is. I mean, we know that she had her garment on, right? And so she just, you know, sort of, you know, like a shawl, and she just holds it out and he fills it up. What the important thing is here, and again, this is embedded in the context of the story at this point, the important thing is that he gives her six measures, six as a promise. What comes after six? Seven. Does anybody know when seven gets thrown around, what's happening? Fullness. Completion. This isn't just imagination. You see this over and over again. There's a reason that day seven, right, is... Wait let me what is seven connected to rest rest you remember this naomi verse 1 should i not seek rest for you what what boaz is grain offering here is is a promise of is rest coming soon it's coming so we've got this this directing one another to the source of hope because you trust that He is the answer you trust, that He will in fact answer. When we're directing each other to the source of hope, we're also directing each other to the assurance of hope that is going to come when we go to Him. As we express need, we will hear words of comfort from our Savior. And we hear words of promise from our Savior. Lastly, and this is 3, 16 to 18, we direct one another to anticipate the fulfillment of hope. Verse 16, I'll get to that, I'll get to it in a second, but listen to what leads up to this, you know, sort of the, I'll show you where that is in a second, but listen to what leads up to it. Verse 16 says this, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said... "And some of your versions say, How did you fare? That's what mine says, ESV. Some of your versions may say something uh, along the same lines. Do you know what it says literally? And this is not... This is not um, um, Diminishing you know, our confidence in translations because translation is trying to communicate you know, more clearly what the, what, the, what the implication is. But when you look at the Hebrew, here's what it says literally. And I wanted to see if you, see if you catch the significance of this. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who are you, my daughter? she said who are you is loaded because you remember that's the question that boaz asked who are you what she was asking ruth is who are you are you ruth the widow Or are you Ruth, Mrs. Boaz? Are you Ruth, the widow and childless, or are you Ruth, the redeemed? Ruth answers her. She says, and again, I love this. She says, then, it says, then she told her, Ruth told Naomi, all that the man had done for her, saying, and then here's what she says, the six me- These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Ruth recounted what Boaz did for her, but she draws attention to what that means for Naomi as well. she tells Naomi of what Boaz's intention was in giving the grain. She goes back with six measures so that Naomi knows it's done. It's going to be dealt with. I will solve, resolve your problem. Your widowhood is not forever. Your childlessness is not forever, ever, Ruth. I mean, Naomi. Naomi already believed it. Naomi already knew it. This woman who came in empty now knows that she is going to be full. And so this is what she says. And this is sort of kind of the point here. We direct one another to anticipate the fulfillment of hope. Naomi says in verse 18, Wait, my daughter. Until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Two, those two words that Naomi uses: Wait. Wait. The beautiful thing about that word is it means dwell." It really sort of means something opposite to what Ruth's situation might communicate, what hers and Naomi's life has been up to this point, actually, um, uh, what they've actually experienced. This dwelling emphasizes this idea of stability and duration as opposed to impermanence and transience. She tells her, wait. In other words, she's anticipating the fulfillment. She's not sitting in the place of this lack of resolution and anguish of doubt. That's not what Naomi is urging her to. See, she's urging her to wait with hope for the fulfillment of hope. And the second thing is that word learn. Anticipating fulfillment of the hope by learning. And here's what she says, right? Until you learn how the matter turns out. That word learn or that, that word that there's learned is this yada. Is that what it's, it's the same word back in, in uh, verse four. When she tells her to observe where Boaz lies down, that's the same word here. Until you learn the matter, or how the matter will turn out. She's saying, watch how things unfold. But it's not just sort of watch how the situation unfolds. In general, what she's urging Ruth to do is to keep her eye on Boaz. Watch him. Keep looking at him. See What he is going to do because he is the one that is going to do it for us. As we're directing each other to Christ as the source of hope, and we're directing each other to him to bring our need, right? Going before that throne of grace. So that we can find grace and mercy in a time of need. We're directing each other to listen for the words of comfort, to listen for those words of promise. And there's this ongoing nature, this future oriented nature. We're directing each other to keep looking at Him. As you and I are walking together, it will be very easy for us to get stuck here. And we're just, oh, geez, got to right? And now we're lost. We're just, all I see is all this stuff around me. And what I need you to do is I need you to say, hey, yes, I'll, look at him. Right? When, we're, when we're disoriented and we're confused. Right? Have you ever been sitting in the car right? and you're not really you know, paying attention? You're sort of like your gaze is not fixed and all of a sudden somebody starts going forward. Right? They start pulling forward. And what do you do? And you've got you to gotta look around. And what are we looking for? To know that we're not moving. Some point, some stationary point that reorients us. That is what I need you to do for me. Is to point me to that stable, stationary, fixed point who's a person. That's what you need the person next to you to do for you. To point you to him so that you hold fast to him. Naomi sought rest for her daughter in law. And now she is confident, and there's a deliberate play on words. This man that she is trusting in will not rest until there's rest. Our man, Christ, he is resting. He has entered in. He is seated on his throne. And he has brought and will bring the rest that you and I so desperately need. Or to say it this way, he is the hope and he will give it. that is where we go that is where we point and direct one another would you pray with me Father we thank you for your word we thank you for this story of redemption that you tell in so many ways, through so many characters, in so many situations, in events that unfold. The story is told and retold. Lord, I pray that We would grasp it. I pray that we would see it clearly. I pray that we would be taken by it. Father, I'm asking that you would help us, your people, to find hope in the place that you have given it. Christ. Father, help us to know that hope, each of us, individually, saturated with it, filled with it. And Lord, I pray that knowing that hope, your Son, that by your Spirit, you would help us to push each other there as well. to point each other there, to urge each other there, to encourage each other to run to Him. Lord, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.